And let me uh, again pray for us. God, um, we are your people. <laughs> Would you allow us to receive that, to know that today? That from Genesis 12, in which you called Abraham out to this very moment, you've been about calling out your people to be yours, saying that you will be our God and we will be your people. Help us to understand that and help us to understand that in such a way that we desire to know you more and more as our father, as our daddy, as one who loves us and cares for us. And in that, God, we uh, pray for others that we know, or maybe folks in this room, that whether it be physically, emotionally, or spiritually, we find ourselves in a place of need and maybe even a very desperate place. God, our country is in a desperate place. There are cities, there are places, there are people, God, that desperately need to know of your immense love. And so we pray over our friends, over our family, over ourselves, and certainly over our country for the outpouring of your love. That we might know you and cry out to you. God, we maybe specifically pray over uh, several churches uh, in Sierra Leone this morning as a church that loves that nation and loves your church growing in that nation God, there are changes in churches that we know in Rapinda, uh, as well as in Fintonia. Uh, people uh, who cry out to you today simply for the sake of the gospel, to give you praise, but also cry out to you in the midst of change, and even in that nation, always the constant threat of those around them. And so the outpouring of your grace and the EPC church in Rapinda, the EPC church in Fintonia in these days, uh, certainly the EPC Church in Moada is, God, we would pray over them that your immense blessing of love would flow in them and through them. God, even now, may you love us in such a way that we hear your word. Not the voice of a pastor, but God, the uh, voice of your spirit as we dig into this, your holy word. Uh, may it be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a question that has been uh, talked about for some time, written about uh, a lot, and I, I don't know if you see uh, some of this, but as I wander at times in my readings, this question usually uh, comes up in some regard. Uh, it's a question sometimes that we hear from unbelievers in our lives as we have discussions with them about Jesus. And, and here is the question. Has the church over time done more harm than good? Uh, has the church over time done more harm than good? Now, you're all good church people. So you're like, 
What? That's a silly question, right? How in the world would, why would you? But listen, there are people that ask the question, right? Now, granted, many of them have been those who are atheists that have often spent time on this question, focused on like the Crusades or wars that have been fought in the name of religion, uh, that are concerned about the reality of uh, leadership abuses uh, in the church, right? They begin to find these things in the life of the church and they... uh, come to some conclusion that maybe the church is doing more harm than good. But some, listen, even atheist Bruce Scheinman, who wrote a book called An Atheist Defends Religion. The subtitle is Why Humanity is Better Off with Religion Than Without It. Even guys like Bruce, others, recognize that the church has made great cultural advances throughout time. We can point to the Roman Empire when it was Christians who arose to defend uh, the sanctity of life, right? And, and literally in those days uh, overthrew the idea of abortion, of infanticide, uh, uh, even of those games they used to play with the gladiators, right? So it was the Christians, it was the church who rose up to defend the sanctity of life in the midst of those things. We, we know that it's been the church in times of, of plague and of disaster uh, in the reality that it is the Christians who have stayed to minister to those who are sick and to those who are dying. Even today, we recognize that there are great groups like Samaritan's Purse, that when there's natural tragedies like hurricanes and other things, that they're oftentimes the very first to the place. So we see the reality that the church, in the name of Jesus, often comes to rescue the hurting. So quite frankly, when we try to hold a scale of good and bad to determine the church's impact... We could debate that forever. And quite frankly, it really depends on your own perspective, your own experiences that will probably determine whether you think the church is doing more harm than good. But I'm not here to answer the question this morning of whether the church is doing more harm than good, but rather to ask the question, Covenant Church, how can we as a church be doing good (laughs) to having an impact, right? I'm not going to answer the age-long debate other than to say, listen, we can't change what's happened, but we can change what's in front of us. And our text this morning is another window into the church of the first century when, quite frankly, they were doing awesome, right? They were doing amazing things to forward the name of Christ, to make known the the precious name and work of Jesus. And and so our text looks at this, and while, while I don't think, listen, I don't think the text is prescriptive in that we have to do it exactly how they did it, it is descriptive of how the church, how covenant church, how we as the church can begin to do more good than harm. So... I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. If you're just visiting with us, uh, we've been in the book of Acts since the, uh, our return, our regathering in June, uh, Acts 1 through 8, and really so that we can look into the early church so that we might seize the day today and the day in which we live to, to be a church as even the early Acts church was. And so uh, I hope you have begun to bring your Bibles. We We stole all the Bibles out of the pews for obvious reasons, but you've gotten used to bringing your Bibles, if you indeed have them this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. As you turn there, I I want you to see something 
about how Luke starts the book of Acts, because there's a, a pattern here that I think is worth noting as we jump in. So uh, back at the beginning of Acts, there was this really cool thing called Pentecost, right? Remember that? There's a, a work of God, a, a miracle of God that was followed by a sermon by Peter, and, and then there was a window into the life of the church. We took some time to look into that window that the church was a, a learning church, and it was a loving church, and it was a worshiping church. And then as we turn the page from that window, there is this other miracle, which we've just been looking at and, and, and have been following along this story. Peter and John are on their way to a prayer gathering at the temple, and there's a lame man, a man who was born lame at the temple gate, and, and they uh, say, we don't have silver or gold to give you, is what you're asking, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, be healed. And he was. So an amazing story, right? And then after that, guess what? Peter preached. <laughs> and then after that, guess what? They gave a window to the church, which is where we at, are at this morning. And I, I bring it up because it's a pattern uh, that, that God is still doing <laughs> through acts of God, faithful preaching of the word, or teaching of the word, and obedience in the church. You see it? God's going to do something miraculous that sets the stage for preaching, which sets the stage for obedience of the church. And, and that is a great thing to note because, guess what? Even in Sharon, Pennsylvania, at Covenant Church, I think God's still doing this. He's still doing works in our midst. He's still uh, using you to proclaim the name of Jesus and myself to preach the name of Jesus. And he's using the obedience in the church to do radical things that the church would be doing more, what, good <laughs> than harm. And so here we go. We focus quickly on this window of obedience again. Uh, you know all about it because we've spent so much time in it, but here's a, a new window to peer through. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God help us in the understanding of his word. I, I don't know if uh, this week I was just extremely hungry as I studied his word, um, but I, I had this overwhelming and repetitive idea that in these verses there's a God sandwich, right? So the first point this morning is I, I want us to see this text in the form of a sandwich, right? Are, are you ready for that? <laughs> Craig Campbell says no. It's going to make you hungry, Craig, right? And it's just, it's just the, Lulu's is right next door. As soon as church is over, you can go, right? So here's a, a God sandwich. First, I, I want us to look at the meat in the middle of the sandwich, right? So, so here's the meat in the middle of the sermon. It's, it's, it's verse 33. Uh, read with me again. It says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, there's a word in there that you should have noticed as I read. Right? <laughs> the word is 
great, right. So Tony the Tiger kind of stuff. Some of you are too young to know that. But the reality of great is, is the Greek word megos, right? And, and there's an intensity to this word. So it, when the writer is wanting to add intensity, he adds megos. And twice in this meat passage comes this word. And it's referring to two things, right? Did you see what it's referring to? You're good students of the Bible. You have them open. You're looking at it. You know that it's referring to power and to grace. There was great power and there was great grace. In the church, the apostles are telling over and over again the story of the resurrection of Jesus who rose from the grave. Because like they watched it. They saw him, right? It was just a few months ago. Like, you would tell that story, too, if you had been there, right? It's a story that's worth repeating. And so they're telling that story over and over and over again. And what's seen in this text is this idea of the megas power. So, listen, it's not just the story... But it's the megos dynamis, right? Power is that word for dynamite in the Greek. The reality is is that it's not just about the story of the resurrection, but it is the great power that God is placing in the story that is making a difference. And that leads to the reality of great grace, which was upon them all. An intense, supernatural grace... And some of you go, well, what is grace? Glad you asked. Let me use a tool this morning. Uh, the tool is Strong's Concordance, which gives definitions as well as helps you to see where words are used in the scriptures. And they have a great definition of grace. Here it is, right? The merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ. It keeps, strengthens, increases them to Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. You have no idea how badly I just want to stop and preach that, right? But we'll keep going. But here that is grace, right? Grace is that that which God is giving in order to turn our hearts to Christ, but not stopping there. Grace doesn't stop at our salvation. Grace takes us to Christian maturity. In fact, it says in this definition that grace takes us to living out Christ's likeness. So it, it leads us to Christ, it grows us in Christ, and then it helps us to live like Christ. That's grace. And it says that in this, te- in this text, it says not just grace, but it says what? Megos grace was upon them all. Now, I I know I'm easily excited, right? But this verse 33, the meat of our sandwich, should have you at the edge of your seat. Like, this is happening, right? They're telling the resurrection story with Megos power. And great grace, Megos grace, is upon them all. This is what God is doing in the church. Listen, he's using the apostles... But he is supernaturally delivering a story that he supernaturally is using in the hearts of the people to turn them to Christ in a life that exercises Christ's likeness. Now, look at the buns of the sandwich. 
You may never hear me say in a sermon again, look at the buns. <laughs> Just want you to realize that, right? So there's the meat. There's what God is doing, right, in our sandwich. L look at the buns. And don't hear them as since God is doing this, well, I, I guess I'll do this, right? I guess I'll obey. No, he hear that their hearts are set on fire. Like Peter in our last text, right? They couldn't help but do these things, Right? This is what the church is doing, not because God has somehow blessed them, but because they can't help but do these things. And, and it's the buns. I, I don't know. It's just the way my brain works. Well, what do they do? Well, first it says they are one in heart and soul. Let that sink in for a second. They are one in heart. So there, there's no division among them. There's no cultural issue that separates them. There's a, a unity that is in the midst of diversity that we can't even begin to imagine. And, and why are they one in heart and soul? Well, this text tells us it is because the resurrection of Jesus is so consuming that there is no difference that can come between them. Because, because of God, the church, listen, way more now than 5,000 people. We know that there are 5,000 men who have been saved, plus their families. I don't know what that looks like. That's a lot of people. That's the church, right? And they've come from all over the world. All kinds of ethnicities. Not only that, but the Jew and the Gentile can't stand each other, and they're both there. 5,000 of them. Of all kinds of diversity. And it says... They are of one heart and soul. They are consumed by the story of Jesus so much that nothing else matters. And look what it does. It creates selflessness. They declare in verse 32, everyone among them is more important than themselves. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own, but they had everything in common. Right? So verse 32 is the bun on top. Verse 33 is the meat. Here comes verse 34 and 35, the bottom bun. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it was laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do you hear it? So the power of God is being preached. The grace has fallen upon them. And because of that, they are one heart and one mind, which means there is no difference among them and no economic difference among them. And the reality is now there is no who are needy among them. That they share everything. Daggone. So, so, so you see the sandwich, right? That, that as God exercises great power in a great story, there is great grace that brings about... A great confession and a great conviction. They, they set aside differences and maybe most of all set aside economic differences. And out of a confession that makes them one, they follow through on a conviction that shows they are one and therefore they live as one. That's, that's a church that's doing more good than harm right there. <laughs> that's a beautiful picture of the church. That's why Luke is telling the Gentile readers that at his purest, this is what church looks like. 
It's filled with guys like Barnabas, and we're not going to get to Barnabas today. We'll talk about him next week because we need good news when we talk about Ananias and Sapphira, right? So the, the reality is, is it, it brings guys like Barnabas who are selling things dear to them in order to provide for those who are left without. And, and, and I have to tell you this because the Spirit of God has been beating on me all week. Our church is no different. This is a pure look at the church. This is the window that God has given us. This is the church in which he loves, adores, and which he has provided for. Covenant Church, this should be us. Listen, if throughout history this was the picture of the church, there would be no doubt or debate as to whether the church was doing good or harm. (laughs) So the question this morning is, how, how are we striving to be this church? How are we operating on mission with God for the sake of his kingdom? How are we seizing this day to make much of Jesus in this manner? So just two points. This is the second one. It's a God sandwich. This one is much more edifying. This is a God mission, right? Because there's a God-sized mission for us here today. Uh, there, there's a mission here that only, listen, that only God can do. But, but as we personalize it, let, let me remind us of some things that, that we've said before really quickly. Again, I don't think this passage is prescriptive in that we're to do exactly as they did. Some of you will be really glad to know that I'm not anticipating all of you to go home, sell your houses, bring the money to the church, and somehow we'll help the people in Sierra Leone. That, it's not, you understand, it's not a prescription that God is writing, so you've got to do it this way. I think there's a really unique context here where God has brought people from all over the world to a certain place, and because of that, they've needed to help one another in unique and unusual ways, and so that's what is happening So it's not prescriptive, but it is, listen, it is descriptive of what we should be doing. That how our hearts should run. By the way, if you want to sell your home and give the proceeds to the church, I'll be in the back afterwards and we can talk. So so listen, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And and listen, it's not socialism. I, I feel like I have to say it in the world in which we live. This is, this, is not, this is not God, not Luke saying we should live in a socialistic way. I'm not making any political statements, right? Hear me? I'm just saying that some people have wanted to make the socialism. Socialism is something that is ordered, right? That is compulsory. Uh, and if we think that's what's happening here, we've greatly mistaken because it's out of the meat of the verse 33 of the power of God and the mercy book that they have voluntarily taken their things and sold them so that everyone would have what they need. Not socialism. So this then really is the point, that the church, that the covenant church might be known for, it's get this, here's the word, selflessness. That, that we as Christians might look a little weird in this world that is consumed with having more by people that give more away. And I hope there's at least three of you here this morning that are going, like, well, how do I do that? Like, if I want to be obedient to the word, how, how do I do that? Well, I'm really glad the three of you asked. Here it is. It, it begins 
with the meat. It begins with the realization that God, listen, is still moving in great power through the story of his resurrection. And he's still pouring upon us great grace. The, 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 the meat of this God sandwich has not changed. Uh, quite frankly, it's, it's the message of this table, right, that we come to today. It, it, it's why we come here the first of every month to remember the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's why we gather every Sunday to worship together. It's why we should always be striving to be in God's Word daily and digging deeper with a small group of people to understand it more. The grace of God will influence, it will turn us to Christ, it will increase our faith, and listen, it will inspire us to obedience. You want to know the will of God? I, I get asked all the time, I want to know, I'll tell you the will of God. This is it, that you be selfless in giving yourself away for the sake of Christ. When we do that, when we realize that God is still moving in great power through the story of his resurrection and great grace continues to reign on us all, we will find first that we are of one heart and soul. You want a, a barometer, you want a measuring stick of when you realize the power of God and you've experienced the grace of God? Church is when we are of one heart and one soul. The message again of this table, that when, when this table becomes such an all-consuming reality to us, that we can put everything else aside to agree on this, <laughs> that's when we know the depth of the power of God and the grace of God. And stop and think about that in our everyday world right now. Listen, I, I, I cannot expect to be of one heart and one mind with an unbeliever. That's a different sermon. I still love them, but there's going to be a divide when this all-consuming reality of, of Christ coming from heaven, living for us, dying for us, and rising again for us, when, when that's not in common, uh, I can't be of one heart and one mind. But, listen, with you who are a fellow believer... And you with each other as fellow believers, and we as a church with other fellow believers, when there is something that's in our crawl that divides us, it means that there is something to us that is more important than this all-consuming reality of Christ. And we need to confess that, repent of it, and come back to this table and quite frankly, come back to this table to leave that issue at the table covered by the blood of Christ. I've been hurt. You have been hurt by people who believe in Jesus. First, I tell you there is healing in this table. Secondly, I tell you I tell you that this table will make the difference that allows us to be the church that does more good than harm. <laughs> that we would be one heart and soul. If I, if I can't take my differences with you 
and set them over here while I embrace you and love you because of our confession, then there is something wrong. And when the church is receptive to the grace that falls upon us, we will be first children of God. We will be one in our confession of truth, the truth of life through Jesus. So how do we get there? We, we recognize and we realize that God is still moving, that we become one heart and soul, and then this, that we might be empowered to be one in our conviction of being selfless. Lots of quotes. You ready? John Piper has said, Two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in its relationship to things and tightened in its relationship to people. That you fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. Another John, whom the first John happens to like a lot, his name is John Calvin, says this, we, we, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. And what he means is these passages in Acts chapter 4. He says, in those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day, and remember John Calvin's writing in the 16th century, we in our day are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. I didn't put the whole quote, but I'll read the whole quote. They sold their own possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each man's own possessions common property for those in need. In our day, such is the inhumanity of many that they begrudge to the poor simply a common dwelling upon earth, the use of water, air, and sky. (laughs) Don't like Piper, don't like Calvin. How about the Apostle John? First John, chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life, he being Christ, for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How about James, the brother of Jesus? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is sick. Is that what it says? It says it's it's dead. The Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 6. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If you don't like any of those, how about Jesus? This is in Philippians 2, talking about Christ himself, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Living selflessly. This statement has helped me a lot 
in thinking about living selflessly. To live more simply in order to give more generously. I think that's the window to the church. To live more simply that we might give more generously. Listen, it might start by being attentive to bringing food to be placed in the blessing box. Many of you today uh, took my instruction and brought something and laid it in the hallway and we'll keep the blessing blocks uh, packed as best we can because people need those foods and it happens. But listen, can I, and, and that's great. I applaud you. I think that's awesome, right? Bring as much as you want, as often as you want for the blessing box. But listen, don't check the box <laughs> and say, I'm glad my selflessness is done for today. Yeah, right? That, 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 that's, that, that's it. Now listen, the, the reality of doing that should inspire you in joy to give more. That's the picture of the church. It, it might start by giving faithfully to the ministry of this church. It is committed, I know, to giving more and more away. It might start by coming to a picnic on First Avenue on the 20th of this month, just a couple weeks away, right? After church, we're going to go have a picnic on First Avenue. But not just to hand somebody a hot dog, but to make a friend, because that friend in that neighborhood has needs that you can begin to love on and make a difference by living selflessly. It might be joining a team of people to work on community gardens in that neighborhood. That we might provide a cool way to make relationships and provide healthy food. Right, Dave D'Alessandro? Got it. Listen, what it should be is stop listening to your pastor because he's got a million ideas of how to be selfless, but you should probably pray. Because God has a specific way for you to be selfless in your world that's going to change somebody's life. But it comes down to this. We need to live more simply that we might give more generously. The great theologian Lily Tomlin. No, not, not really a theologian. But, but she is quoted as saying this. <laughs> the road to success is always under construction. That's a great... You're going to use that this week, right? The road to success is always under construction. Uh, listen, we can't look at Acts 4 and go, man, we made it. We're there. Now listen, this road will always be torn up more than the Pennsylvania Turnpike. This road will always be being built for you. We never get to a place where it says we've arrived. But, but our success in being Christ-like and being selfless uh, as it's under construction on this side of heaven will be dependent on the power of God and the greatness of His grace. And we will be of one mind in becoming selfless together. Let me close with this. Another great statement. The world at its worst needs a church at its best. It's not mine. I forget where I got it from, but it's good. Use it. The world at its worst needs the church 
at its best? What will we do, Covenant Church, to be at our best? That we might seize the day that we are in. That we might leave this valley no room to doubt that even this valley is a better place because of the church. Because of God's people. That we rise from irrelevance to being a church with one confession, the greatness of God. And a church with one conviction to being selfless in serving God others.